three years prior to that, LeBron James entered into the NBA having never gone to college. In fact, some of the, the greatest players in NBA history never went to college. Tracy McGrady and Dwight Howard and, and even Kobe Bryant never went to college, and so they went straight from high school to the NBA. And so this new rule really took fans by surprise. In fact, it was very uh, controversial at the time, and, and, and many fans to this day don't know what to think about this rule because what would happen after that is that would force the most talented players in the nation to have to go to college for one year. And they would go to college for one year, and that year would be called their one and done year. And so what you would see happen is the, the greatest college basketball, the, the, the greatest basketball players in the nation would, would come together and try to get on the same team. Why is that? Well, there's no real need to build a legacy or, or to build some kind of, of, of name at a school because in their mind, all they were focused on was getting to, on to the next level. One thing is for sure about this rule, it has led to really some of the most dominant basketball teams in, in, in college basketball history. Because the fans and, and, and the, the universities and the coaches and, and the whole the whole fan base goes all in for this one year. They go all out in a win or go home mentality. For the next few Sunday nights, we're going to be engaged in a study called One and Done. And we're not going to have a, a sports uh, perspective on this. We're just simply taking the idea of, of that and, and applying it to a spiritual context of, of one and done. Instead of focusing on the sports aspect of this idea, we're going to be trying to focus in on some of the books in God's Word that often get neglected. Instead of getting the spotlight or the references that other books get, often these books are flipped past as you're on your way to one of the other books in the Bible. In this series, we're going to be focused on some of the books that even the, the most avid note-takers, perhaps when you flip to your uh, copy of this book, you're, you're going to see that maybe you don't have the same amount of notes for this book that you have for other books. And that's maybe not because of your faults, perhaps because it's just simply not preached as much as those other books. You know, I I'm, I'm, I'm care to guess that if you were to turn to the book of Romans, that, that you would have, have notes all throughout the margin and, and notes all throughout the book of Romans. And, and perhaps the book of Matthew, you would have all these cross-references and notes that that you've taken over the years, or, or if you were to turn to Ephesians or, or, or to 1 John, you, you would have these, these notes as the years gone by, as, as you've heard sermons and you've heard Bible classes and you've heard different things. But this, the books we're going to be studying this series, perhaps, perhaps you don't have that many notes about. And that's because this series is going to be investigating the books of the Bible that only contain one chapter. The books of, of God's Word that, that don't go on and on for chapters and chapters, but simply have this one chapter 
that the author tries to get everything he has to say out. These books of the Bible are the one and done books in God's Word. They go all out and all in for one single chapter. And even though you may think, off the top of your head, some of these books, as we're going to get into them, you may seem, they may seem to be less important simply because there, there is less information there. What we have to realize is they're just as impactful to our life, and they should be just as impactful to our Christian life as any of the other books. You know, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so when we think about some of these books that we often flip past and some of these books that don't get the spotlight and, and don't get the, the focus that they should, we have to understand if, if we want to be complete, if we want to be equipped for every good work, then then that means we have to consume all of God's Word. Even if some of the scriptures we're talking about are, are harder to understand or are harder to apply or maybe even one chapter long. God gave us these books so that we might complete ourselves. So that we might grow in our knowledge and our understanding of Jesus Christ. So tonight we're going to be studying the powerful text of Jude. Turn your Bibles to the book of Jude. If you don't know where that is, it's before Revelation and after 3 John. We're going to be talking about the book of Jude. It's one of my favorite books. Now before we even get into the text tonight, I, I, I just want you to know if, if you haven't studied the book of Jude before, and, and that's, that's why we're having this study in this series, but, but maybe you don't know much about the book of Jude, what you need to know is that the book of Jude is the perhaps the most controversial book when you ask scholars in all the Bible. The book of Jude is perhaps the most disputed book in all the Bible. Scholars, theologians, and critics have always and will always go back and forth when it comes to the content of Jude. And while we don't have time to dive into all of those different aspects of the book of Jude, and we don't have time to, to necessarily parse every single word in the book of Jude and understand exactly what Jude is trying to say with every single line, we do have an opportunity tonight to see what Jude was trying to say. If you're interested in some of those deeper studies, feel free to talk to one of the ministers, talk to me. I, I know I had to do a lot of study on the book of Jude in graduate school, and I could direct you to some resources that would help you understand the book better. But as I was trying to say, I, I think sometimes so much focus and so much writing has been dedicated to the things surrounding the book of Jude that we have forgotten the true meaning and the true message of Jude. And so it's my goal tonight for us to focus in on what God's Word says tonight from the powerful message that Jude tries to give the church. So let's go ahead and just read the book of Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. 
Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily into the era of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom there is reserved blackness and darkness forever. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust? These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Father who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. All right, so I know that was a lengthy text. I hope I hope you're able to see some, already some of the things that, that Jude is trying to get across as we read that text. But before we start breaking down the text, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about the book of Jude, some of those surrounding things. When you, when you think about the, the authorship of the book of Jude, you see there in verse 1 that it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55, you're going to see a list of Jesus' brothers. You turn to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55, 
It says, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? From this text, you can see that, that Jesus had four half-brothers, two of which we know went on to have a very significant impact in the Lord's church in the first century. One of those you are more familiar with, with James. You know James went on to be such a leader in the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, all the way to his epistle of James, the book of James. And the other, you know, is Judas. Or is commonly at that time shortened down to Jude. He's the author of the book of Jude. And if you were here with us for Charge Weekend, you probably remember Andrew Itzen. He, he made a great point about the book of James. If you remember when we were going over the book of James, he made a great point about the book of James when he said that every single word that is in the book of James is under the context of James' former life. You remember when he was talking about that? And so what he's talking about is what we see in John chapter 7 and verse 5. In John chapter 7 and verse 5, it says, For even his brothers did not believe. And so here we see during the Lord's earthly ministry, his very own brothers did not believe that he was the Son of God. And so Andrew talked about how James, every single thing we see in the book of James is denoted. The context, the subtext is, is this past that James had where he didn't even believe in the Son of God. Well, the very same thing could be said about our study tonight in the book of Jude. The very same thing could be said about what we're going to be reading tonight. Every single word of what we just read and what we're going to be talking about tonight is the context of someone who at one time did not even believe Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And before we even start breaking down the text, isn't it amazing to watch someone that at one large portion of their life denied Christ, but at the end of their life called themselves the bondservant of Christ. You start getting into that language of, of what that word is, and the word bondservant is doulos, and he's really calling himself a slave of Christ. He, he has put himself in such submission to Christ that, that he is Christ's servant. He, he is Christ's his bondservant. At one point in his life, he didn't even believe in Jesus. Isn't it amazing to see someone deny Jesus and then call themselves the bondservant of Jesus? Isn't it an amazing journey before we even talk about what Jude talks about? To see someone who did not have faith to tell the church in verses 3 and 4 to contend earnestly for the faith. Let's talk about the audience in verse 1 you're going to see. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So obviously we see that Jude is writing this book to those who are called, those who are sanctified, those who have been set apart. And he's obviously talking to the church, the church at large. Let's talk about the date of the book. Well, the date of the book is one of the most uh, argued points when it comes to the book. When we try to date this book, it's very difficult to date it because of its relationship to 2 Peter. We can get really bogged down into that. I don't want to do that tonight. 
But if you, in case you didn't know, there are so many different similarities to 2 Peter that a lot of people question who wrote the book first. Who, did, second, did, did, did Peter write 2 Peter first or did Jude write Jude first? Because there are some odd 18 different content, continuities, between the two texts. And what you're going to see is scholars on both ends of this argument will hang their entire reputation on which one of these came first. But far more important than the date of Jude, to me, is the purpose of Jude. Why did Jude write this epistle? And why should this tiny little book matter to me tonight? Well, you're going to see in verses 3 and 4, we'll read it again, the purpose of the book of Jude. Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting to you, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose for Jude writing this book was to challenge the church. It was to challenge them to, to contend earnestly for the faith. To contend earnestly for what it was that they had been taught and what it was that they believed and, and what it was that they had seen for years and years. To contend earnestly for the faith in a culture and in a society that was overrun with false teaching and false teachers. He writes to the church in hopes that, that perhaps they would open their eyes, open your eyes to all of the people, all of the wolves that had come in among the sheep. It's almost like he's, he's saying, <clears throat> hello. Have you not noticed all of these people that have come in, they've crept in with all of these false doctrines, all these false teachings, and all of these things that are against the will of God? Are, are you not going to do anything about it, church? These people who have perverted the truth? Notice what he says he wanted to write about. What does he say he wanted to write about? He says... I, in effect, I, I didn't want to write this to you. I wanted, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. If Jude had his way, he, 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 he would have wrote, written about some of the things that, that we love to read. Our common salvation. But because of the overwhelming need, he wrote an entirely different message. What he's saying is, I, I wish I could write to you about our common salvation, our, our common faith in God. I, I wish I could write to you about how blessed we are as, as Christians and how great God is. But instead, I, I feel compelled to wake you up. You know, if Jude was able to write about what he wished he could write about, I guarantee you we'd read it a lot more. If Jude was, was able to write about that common salvation and, and that common love and, and, and what it, how great it is to be a Christian and, and our Christian life, 
the practical elements his brother got to write about. If he was able to write about what he wished he could write about, I'm sure we would read it a lot more often. Because what you, what you realize when you get into ministry and, 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 and when, you, when you become a leader in the Lord's church, you're going to understand that, that people want to focus on the mercy seat of Christ way more than they want to focus on the judgment seat of Christ. And that's what you're going to see in the book of Jude. You're going to see someone calling people on the carpet and calling out the false teaching that they were, they were taken away with. And so because the church needed this wake-up call, Jude spends the majority of the book dissecting in very vivid detail what it means to be a false teacher. Over the next many verses, he's going to break down the, the true heart and motive of those who teach falsely. And so he begins with talking about some of the famous false teaching of the Old Testament, some, some of the, the Old Testament things that they would definitely have remembered. In verse 5, he, he talks about the false teachers of Israel and, and what happened to them. They, they were ultimately destroyed. In verse 6, he talks about the false teachers among the angels, those who followed after Satan. He says that darkness awaits them. In verse 7, he says the, the, the false teachers in Sodom and Gomorrah what does he say about them? He says they were decimated with the vengeance of hell fire. What does he say in verse 11? He talks about the, the falseness or, or the falsity of Cain and Balaam and Korah and all of these Old Testament examples that they would have remembered. And how every single one of them, time after time and time again, they all perished in their greed and in their error. In the rebellion of Korah, it was stomped out before it even had a chance to get off the ground, as we know. And so, too, will this falsity that we're talking about in the church, Jude says. All of those examples we just went through, it's going to happen right now to us if we don't stop. And then what do you see Jude do? He stops talking about some of, some of the, the Old Testament examples. He starts talking about what it means to be. A false teacher. The true character of a false teacher is this. Just follow along in the text with me. Starting in verse 4, what does he call a false teacher? He calls them ungodly. You're going to see that, that word many times in the book of Jude. If you're one of those underliners, go for it. You're going to see the word un ungodly many times throughout the book of Jude. We'll get to that in a second. In verse 10, he calls false teachers brute beasts. Brute beasts is how he describes false teachers. In verse 12, he's going to say that they are spots. Some translations say stains, and some translations say hidden reefs. You ever been swimming in the ocean, and all of a sudden you hit a piece of coral? You ever, I've, I've, I've never been, uh, uh, what's it called when you snorkel? That thing. I never snorkeled before. But I've watched television shows and I've seen movies where all of a sudden they, they come upon a, a coral reef. He said that you are a hidden reef. You, 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 your only purpose in life is to injure people who aren't looking out. 
Your only purpose in life are to injure those who aren't paying attention. That's what he says about false teachers. He says false teachers are clouds without water. They're useless. False teachers are, are, are trees without fruit. They're useless. In verse 13, he says false teachers are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. What, what, a, what a vivid language, right? False teachers are raging waves that, that their evidence of being there are obviously seen by all the foam. Foam of shame, he says. In verse 13, he, he says that false teachers are wandering stars, wandering deeper and deeper into the darkness. In verse 16, he says that false teachers are grumblers, they are complainers, they are flatterers. In verse 18, he says that false teachers are mockers. In verse 19, he says false teachers are worldly. And at the end of all of these descriptions of, of what false teachers are, in, in verses 14 and 15, he says this, Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all and to convict all who are ungodly among them of all of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now the beginning of this passage, by the way, if you're wanting to get into some of the critical elements of the book of Jude, this is where that critical element comes in. What is this prophecy of Enoch? Well, you go back to the Old Testament, you don't see the book of Enoch. What, what you do if you go to the pseudepigrapha, that's something that you can look up in your own time. Again, if you're interested in that, I had to write a paper on it. I'm not going to get into it right now. But what's more important to me is this description of false teachers. Jude says, all, all of these people that I've just described, all of the brute beasts, all of the clouds without water, all of the trees without fruit, all of the grumblers, all of the complainers, all of the mockers, every single one of them is going to be convicted and every single one of them is going to be judged on the day of the Lord. On that great day when 10,000 of his angels come to exact vengeance, they will be convicted. Notice in the passage, he uses the word ungodly four times. Four times to describe false teachers. All those who are ungodly, all their ungodly deeds, ungodly ways, ungodly sinners. At the end of the day, that's exactly what false teachers are. At the end of the day, you could sum it up with, with ungodliness. And that's the thing about false teachers, you would never expect it. You would never expect that, that this teacher would, could, could possibly be ungodly because this, this teacher and this preacher is, is perhaps my favorite preacher, perhaps my favorite teacher, and there's no way that he's ungodly because he is so powerful or, or he is so smart or, or he is so passionate or whatever it might be. And you might think to yourself, there's no way that this one's ungodly. But if you're a false teacher, that's exactly what you are. 
You may come across as, as looking the part. You may come across as sounding the part. You may come across as, as, as appearing to every single indication to man that, that you are one of God's. But inwardly, you are as ungodly as Satan himself because that's who you serve. And then in the text, you're going to see Jude compares that to what Christians ought to be. He's going to say in verses 20 through 23, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Jude says, instead of building yourself up in the faith that this false teacher is, is, is building for you, build yourself up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit, he says. Keep yourself in the love of God. And in that context, he, he talks about saving souls. The, the only way that we can save souls is if we do that. If we build ourselves up into the most holy faith, if we are praying in the Spirit, if we are keeping ourselves in the love of God, then we will be able to discern how to save souls. What's he talking about? Two different types of souls. One soul really needs to be given compassion. One soul really needs to, to be given patience, really needs to be given love and understanding. On some, have compassion, he says. But then what does he say about the others? On some, you have to pull them out of the fire. On some, you have to save with fear. Pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. You know, I think a lot of people are good at one or the other of those. I've known a lot of people that were very good about being compassionate to the lost and, and being patient with the lost and being loving to the lost and, and doing all these wonderful things on, on this side of the coin to the lost. But I've also known a lot of people who were very good at... at at pulling people out of the fire. At talking to them about how important it is to have their soul right with God and, and how, how wonderful it is to be able to be in the presence of God and, and how if we aren't doing what we should, we're, we're going to be in the presence of Satan, in the presence of hell, fire, forever. I, I've seen people on both sides of the coin, but Jude says we have to make the distinction. Jude says that we, we, we can't just all be hellfire and brimstone. And we all can't just be lovey-dovey. That's my translation. That's pretty bad. But maybe you'll remember it. To save souls, we, we, we've got to make the distinction, he says. Brothers and sisters, we are... We're in a battle. 
I don't know. I don't know if we talk about that enough. We're in a spiritual battle for souls. We are in a we are engaged in, in, in a battle against Satan and all of his false teaching. And all of his false teachers. I think that's something that we see every day. We see false teaching every day. In our day and age, people don't even know who they are anymore. In our day and age, people don't even know who God made them to be anymore. And every single day of our lives, it is put before us as if this is normal, as if this teaching is, is right, as, and they call evil good and good evil, Isaiah 5. We see false teaching every day of our lives, I believe. We hear false teaching every day of our lives, I believe. And we know that false teaching exists. The question that Jude asks every one of us tonight is are you contending for the faith or are you hiding from it are you contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints or are you hiding from your faith you know Jude makes it very clear it's not enough to know that there is a problem. It's not enough to, to be aware of the problem. Jude makes it very clear that the problem needs to be addressed. And sometimes what that means for Jude is ten or so verses of name-calling. Sometimes that means saving the lost with the fear of hell fire itself, according to Jude. But one thing is clear when you read the book of Jude is that ungodly people have no place in the church. Well, somebody says, well, Ben, aren't we all ungodly? Aren't every single one of us ungodly? And yes, in, in, a, in a sense, without Christ, Every single one of us here tonight is ungodly. Every single one of us is ungodly in and of ourselves, but when we get into Christ, we are no longer ungodly. We are supposed to be men and women of God. Every single one of us is as ugly as sin without Christ, but with Christ, every single one of us has been made perfect. There is a difference in someone saying that, well, we're all ungodly and, and therefore, you know, we're all ungodly. So who, what can we do? There is a big difference in a brother or sister doing every single thing they can to fight the good fight of faith and stumbling every now and then. There's a big difference in that in a brother and sister who are actively leading other people astray. And that's exactly what Jude talks about. That's what Jude is confronting. That's what the church was facing, and it's what we face, the same battle we face tonight, contending for the faith. Notice Jude doesn't say contend for your faith. Contend for your faith. 
He says, contend for the faith. What does he mean by that? Well, we're talking about it all the time. Here we go again. But Ephesians 4, 5, there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. When Jude says to contend for the faith, he is making a clear distinction. He is trying to tell us that the nature of Christian faith is singular. He says it was once for all delivered to the saints. And that means it is not to be altered, it is not to be changed, it is not to be distorted, it is not to be perverted in any way. But even though we know that, we know people who put their own beliefs, their own thoughts, and their own opinion above the Word of God. And these are the very people that Jude describes in this book in verse 13 when he says that they are bound for destruction, bound for blackness, bound for darkness, he says. The question we have to ask ourselves tonight is, are we contending for the faith or are we hiding from it? Tonight, Jude encourages us that that it is okay. It's, it's okay to stand up for the truth. Did you know that? It's okay to stand up for the truth and to voice what is right and what is true. It's okay to call out on godliness. It's okay to confront those who stand in opposition to God and His Word. Well, some of you might be going, Yeah! Woo! Free pass to chew anybody out I want to. I hope that that's not you tonight, but I know someone will take it that way. Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith. I want you to remember that he didn't say, be contentious for the faith. Remember that we have to get the plank out of our own eye before we get the speck out of our brother or sister's eye. Anytime we attempt to talk to them about about their life tonight you have to ask yourself is the faith my faith is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints it, is that my faith or have I been building a faith of my own what are you willing to stand up what, what are you willing to do to stand up for the faith? Tonight, every single one of us in this room may be coming from different perspectives on this. Maybe, maybe in this room, you have grown tolerant of false teaching. Just like the church that Jude addresses. You have become tolerant to false teaching that is in your life or, or that has been presented to you and, and you've grown so tolerant of it that you're fine with it. Maybe you want to repent of that tonight. Maybe some of you are the one going around teaching false teaching. Maybe some of you have so much baggage and hurt feelings in your life that you've become in opposition to the Lord's church. Verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Whatever your case is tonight, Jesus Christ is able in that great day of judgment to present you faultless. All you've got to do is come as together we stand and sing for your encouragement. Bring Christ to able to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, we would like to do so tonight. If you'd pass to the rear of the auditorium as we sing number 950, number 950, you'll be uh, directed to where you can partake. We'll sing all three verses, number 950. Your only son, no sin to hide, but you have saved him from your side. To walk upon this guilty side and to become the Lamb of God. O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the holy Lamb of God.
sacrifice the song this evening will be number 824. Number 824. This time I'd remind you please to uh, mark your attendance uh, if you would using the QR code in front of you or direct to the website. I also invite you to be back with us on Wednesday evening for Bible study uh, at 7 p.m. If you would stand with me as we sing number 824. We'll sing the first and third verses. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory. thank you for the day we've had today. We thank you for the time that we've had and the ability we've had to come together to study your word. 
this morning with Bible class and worship and again this evening. We thank you for the messages that have been brought to us from your word. We thank you for this congregation that we have, for the ability that we have to come together and fellowship and to study and to grow. We thank you for our brother Bob and for the influence that he's had in this congregation and on many of us. We know that he has been an influence on many thousands through your word and through his example of you, and we pray comfort on his family. We thank you for all those who have served you here and around the world to bring others to you. We pray comfort on his family and that you would guide us as we can to, to be support for them to be your arms, to comfort them here. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he was willing to come to this earth and give his life for us, that we would have our hope of eternal salvation and that we would have comfort that those who have gone on before us are with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.